Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, onto the show. I was recently invited to attend Ripple's annual conference called Swell, which is held down in Singapore this year. Ripple is a US-based fintech company whose main goal is to enable banks and financial institutions to easily send money across the globe by leveraging blockchain technology. I was also given a rare opportunity to sit down and interview a number of the company's executives to discuss their vision for what they call the Internet of Value. We also talked about the company's main product offerings, their native digital asset called XRP, and the independent decentralized cryptographic ledger, which XRP runs on, called the XRP Ledger. For those of you who have already been involved in the blockchain or crypto space for a while, you will be quite familiar with the tribalism and polarity that exists in this space, particularly among the holders and supporters of the various cryptocurrencies. With that in mind, the format of this week's program will be slightly different than usual. I've taken the most salient discussion points from the various four interviews I've had and merged them into one longer deep dive episode with the goal of giving you the most unbiased, objective, and comprehensive overview of what Ripple does as a company and what their plans are for the future. Our exploration begins with a high-level discussion with Brad Garlinghouse, the CEO of Ripple. He gives us a solid background of the current banking system, an overview of Ripple's business model, and the big problem that Ripple is trying to solve. Brad is the CEO of Ripple and a member of the board of directors. Prior to Ripple, Brad held various senior executive positions at Hightail, AOL, and Yahoo. We're here with Brad Garlinghouse, CEO of Ripple. Uh, thank you for welcoming me to the Swell Conference here in Singapore. Um, how are you like in Singapore? How's, how's your trip in and everything? It's been phenomenal. Uh, other than some sketchy weather today, uh, Singapore has been a tremendous host for this. And it, part of why we chose Singapore, frankly, is it is obviously a hub for a lot of activity across APAC. About 40% of our customers are in the Asia Pacific region. And there's also a lot of regulatory clarity or more regulatory clarity here than a lot of other markets. And that's obviously good for the blockchain industry at large. Yeah, it's fantastic. So we're going to get into all of that. Um, Let's go with the, I'm, I'm going to try to breeze through the 101s uh, yeah, quickly, but let's get some background on you quickly for people out there that uh, don't know who you are, um, you know, where you're from, what got you into tech, because I know you're a longtime uh, tech person, and uh, why you ended up joining Ripple, uh, you know, yeah. back when you did. So I grew up uh, in the United States in Kansas uh, and went to the University of Kansas, and it have always been it gravitated toward technology uh, you know, the, the, the extra level of detail there is my dad bought us a TRS-80 computer, which uh, some of your listeners will know what that <laughs> is. Most won't. Uh, and so kind of got exposed to computing and programming at a very early age, and uh, it stuck with me. And so spent part of my career on the infrastructure uh, doing network stuff, telco, uh, coax cable stuff. Uh, but Ended up at Ripple in large part, you know, I've always kind of gravitated towards uh, leading edge and at times bleeding edge uh, areas that I've thought could in some way change the world. Mm -hmm. I got involved with the internet very, very early. Um, you get, got exposed to the Mosaic browser in 1993 and, you know, one thing led to another and spent a lot of time on, on the internet side and then a long career at Yahoo. Uh, but for me, uh, what blockchain represents, what crypto represents is you know, a 10 or 20 year evolution where I think it's going to impact more and more industries and more and more ways in which 
global commerce operates. And I mean that in kind of every definition. And so uh, I wanted to get involved with it and uh, I got involved with Ripple and feel uh, through a little bit of luck and a little bit of skill, we find ourselves in a really interesting spot. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good intro. Kansas, um, uh, the, the reason I know, I'm, I'm a Carolina grad, so Roy Williams, Williams yeah, yeah, he's, Jayhawks. You know, yeah. We're friends. We're, yeah, we're, yeah, we're kind of, we're friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Competitive, competitive. Well, we both friends. hate Duke, so that's Absolutely, good. Absolutely, yeah. So that's a, that's a good common ground for us to start with. Um, okay, so let's hear the sort of one-liner elevator pitch, uh, if you will. What is Ripple as a company, and what problem are you trying to solve? Ripple as a company, effectively, in its kind of simplistic way, is an enterprise software company selling software to banks. Uh, the tech stack we use includes uh, both an open source digital asset called XRP, as well as some uh, you know, on-ramps and off-ramps, which are kind of proprietary blockchain capabilities that uh, allow for banks to do real-time settlement. So today, as many, I'm sure, listening here are familiar, cross-border financial transactions, uh, whether it's remittances, corporate, they tend to be very slow and very expensive. Uh, we have we have kind of talked about since the beginning of Ripple the idea of an internet of value. How do we let value move the way information moves today? You know, you based in Hong Kong, and I, you know, you can watch a North Carolina game from anywhere in the world anytime. Mm -hmm. Yet you can't send a wire on Sunday. You know, one of our uh, panelists here at the Swell Conference yesterday made the comment that, you know, we put a man on the moon, we found water on Mars, yet you can't right. send a wire on Sunday. Uh, it's it's pretty crazy that. Our global financial infrastructure is, you know, four to five decades old in terms of how it operates and the all of the things that go with that, error rates, speed, cost, are four or five decades old. And we think it's time to bring that to the a modern infrastructure. And there's a lot of downstream implications that we think are pretty exciting for lots of people. It's pretty remarkable that you know, no one's actually looked that deep into, or maybe people have, but you know, I mean, no one's really come forth. I mean, you, you see a lot of payment solutions that people are coming up with from the technology world, but they're more for the consumer. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of people just didn't know how archaic the, the infrastructure, you know, the current, current plumbing is for, for yeah. you know, institutional cross-border payments. Well, if I might interject on that, you know, I, I commented on this a little bit in my opening remarks to this Well Conference yesterday, but a lot of the people doing interesting things, whether it's consumer or otherwise, in uh, payments, they're kind of hacks on the existing infrastructure where because of the limitations of the system, they're, they're building workarounds that allow for a better experience, but they're not actually changing the infrastructure. And so you know, Ripple from its earliest days had this audacious goal of if you really want to enable the internet of value, you have to rework the plumbing. And that's where Ripple has been, you know, focused. Uh, if we can reset the plumbing, and you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, we now have a lot of customers and a lot of momentum towards that. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. And was, were the founders of Ripple sort of from the payment side? Were they from, you know, a bank, a financial institution? Like, how would they? You even look to you know overturn that stone and be like, okay, this needs disruption, right? It's a good question. It's you know, Chris Larson, who is the chairman of the company and was one of the co-founders. He founded eLoan, which is one of the first uh, lending platforms on the internet back in the early days of kind of internet 1.0, and then more recently he founded a peer-to-peer -peer lending uh, site called Prosper. And so he firsthand had seen some of the limitations and, you know, for really a, a decade or two been thinking about how does fintech, how does fintech enable a broader community to be a part of the, 
the banked community, the, the, the first world financial system. And for him, the, the ripple vision really, you know, came from some of those experiences. I don't come from uh, payments and actually kind of a, a funny story on this is when I first got the call asking, it was a recruiter calling me, uh, you know, he said, well, you know, ripples looking for somebody. And I said, like, I'm, I'm not your guy. You know, like, I know some people at PayPal. I know some people at visa, like you should talk to them. And you know what? the recruiter said is, well, Chris Larson feels like in order to find somebody to really change a system, you want somebody from kind of outside the system That's to true. look at it differently. Uh, I don't know if he's right or not, <laughs> but, but here I am five years later. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we, we shall see. We shall see. Uh, okay. So the basic, uh, ripple, the company, the basic, uh, I guess, revenue model, so to speak, selling enterprise software to financial institutions, banks, uh, intermediaries. Um, and, and within that you have a couple of products, your ex current product, which is sort of the the, the easiest uh, first first step for to get these guys on board, uh, and then you have what used to be known as X Rapid uh, on demand liquidity, uh, the art, artist formerly known as yes, exactly Prince. Uh, <laughs> um, and so maybe you can talk us through those two products um, because I think that there's a little bit of confusion, uh, especially from people that haven't researched Ripple the company that well. Um, you know, the initial pushback was basically, oh, well, you know, you don't need to use the digital asset. You know, you could just do everything on X current. So maybe. Yeah, let's talk through it. So the idea was it kind of exactly as you introduced, you know, we wanted to bring banks, financial institutions into the opportunities represented by these new technologies. And, you know, frankly, uh, starting at the deep end, and I'll say the deep end is going all the way into using digital assets to solve some of these problems, as opposed to gradually working them into that. Uh, we've found it much more effective to start having a conversation about how they can use products like what we've called X current, which is kind of the, when someone wants to connect to RippleNet using fiat, so, you know, you can connect from the bank of Brad to another bank using dollars to peso, but that's using the existing pre-funded accounts. Mm. Now, if you have pre-funded accounts in your bank, this is a more efficient mes messaging system than what is Swift is typically what people would use. And uh, it's a more efficient version. That's good. Uh, what we have found is by getting them on board, uh, it gives us an opportunity to explain to them, look, there's an opportunity such that you don't have to pre-fund. And that's where on-demand liquidity comes into play. And the idea being that you know, when a financial institution, whether it's a bank or payment provider, is pre-funding, they're taking working capital. They're taking mm -hmm. their you know, balance sheet resources and they're parking them somewhere such that they then can you know, have that nostro-vostro relationship between banks as to how the correspondent banking system works. Yeah, so, so literally, XCurrent is essentially a better version of Swift. I mean, you don't have to, <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble or anything, but I mean, essentially that's what it is. You're, you're, you're going into that infrastructure. You're basically saying, look, this is going to be just faster and better. Uh, yeah. And you don't have to necessarily build out anything further from, I mean, or you guys go in and. Yeah, that, that's basically true. I mean, it, it is a simplistic version, but look, it, Swift today is a one way messaging framework. I, I use the comparison. If you were to send me a postcard you would fill out the postcard, Brad Garling House, blah, 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 nice to see you, uh, stick it in the post office, put it in a mailbox, and then you have no idea what happens, mm -hmm. right? It goes in the mailbox, you have no idea what routing it went to, you don't even know if I got it. You don't know how long it took me to, got, to get it, none of those things. Swift kind of works the same way. You execute a Swift wire transaction, you don't know when, the only way you know I received it is when I send you a note saying, hey, I got your wire. Right. 
So what we have done is really taken that, I think, very rudimentary infrastructure that was built decades ago and said, look, let's have a two-way messaging framework. And when I'm typing in, you know, I didn't want to send a wire to Brad Garlinghouse, you can in real time verify, does the account number match the name? You know, one of the primary errors that happens through Swift is somebody, maybe fat fingers, instead of Brad Garlinghouse, they say Brad Garlington and they put in the account number and, you know, it goes to the other bank and they're like, the account number doesn't match the username. The, the, the right. account number and the account name don't match and so it's rejected. You know, th that causes lots of overhead and, uh, you know, that type of stuff just doesn't need to happen in a world where you can use better technologies, uh, internet-based technologies to do this in real time. Yeah, so that's, uh, again, it, when, you, when you unpack this, it's, it's kind of uh, mind-blowing that this hasn't been improved uh, yet yeah. or is in the process of still. Uh, okay, and then so now once a, once a customer is onboarded onto XCurrent, X, uh, on-demand liquidity is uh, another solution. Does that come in the same enterprise software suite where they can simply uh, flip a switch? Fl flip a switch, yeah. and, and uh, I mean, you got to be careful bit... with that, by the way. <laughs> that phrase. Uh, I mean, again, it's a little bit simplistic, but the idea being that when someone connects to RippleNet, they don't have to think about, you know, okay, I want this product, this product. You're connected to RippleNet, and we can offer different features and functionality within that. If you already have liquidity, you don't need to use on-demand liquidity. Then those payments don't touch XRP. Uh, if you don't have liquidity and you want to shoot payments into the Philippines and you don't have a correspondent banking relationship there, right. we can help you solve that. And right. we can do that in real time. You don't have to pre-fund and you can shoot off payments into Philippines uh, using XRP as the payment mechanism. Right. And so if you're a bank, if you didn't have a correspondent bank relationship, maybe you can talk a little bit about correspondent banks and the massive amount of business that they're doing because some of these banks have to use them. They're basically forced to use them until now. <laughs> yeah. You know, you really didn't have an option. And this is you know, the banking system. And I have pointed this out in your various uh, interviews over the years. There's $10 trillion pre-funded in accounts around the world, which is effectively the, the grease, the oil that is facilitating the engine that is correspondent banking. The oil has to be there or correspondent banking won't work. And so it's the oil that sits there. Now, if we could reduce the amount of oil, that improves the efficiency of the global economy. Sure. Uh, so we feel like bit by bit, we're going to be able to take that $10 trillion down to $9 trillion, down to $8 trillion. And this is a journey that will take, you know, many years. Uh, but we're, as I'm sure we'll get into, you know, incredibly enthused by the progress we've made in a relatively, amount of, relatively short amount of time. So, uh, and then, so from a customer perspective, then, they're able to, so there's a, there's a significant cost savings as well when they switch over to on-demand liquidity. Uh, so it's more of sort of getting them on to XCurrent, indoctrinating them into to how it all works, and then basically it's for them to decide on their own. Yeah, and, and well, it's a cross-sell. I mean, they decide on their own. We're, we're evangelizing. If you're working with a bank and or a payment provider and you're saying, Hey, you know, here's what we can do in this corridor. And that might be fiat to fiat, but Hey, you know, you want to open up a new corridor. You have customers in uh, Brazil that you can't serve. I mean, one anecdote I would offer, we were, we were talking to one of the largest banks in Canada and they were exiting their correspondent banking relationship in Brazil. Now they still have customers that want to bank to do business in Brazil, mm -hmm. but they just decided the cost and the overhead of maintaining that relationship of a correspondent bank, maintaining that Nostro Vostra account relationship, 
they decided that there's too much overhead associated with that. So they, they ended, they closed that relationship, but they still need to enable payments into Brazil. So they just used a different correspondent. Now, that means they're paying somebody else, but they still have customers who want to enable payments into Brazil. Our viewpoint is in the future, uh, you know, the, I think they told us this about a year ago, but you know what they basically said is, look, if you can enable us to be in Brazil without being in Brazil, that's fabulous. Now, when they were telling us this story, we weren't ready. Uh, we first announced the product of on-demand liquidity at the time, as you described earlier, called XRapid. Right. We first announced our intent to productize that uh, a year ago at the Swell Conference, and we went live in January. And you know, again, we've got now over twenty-two dozen customers that are live using on-demand liquidity, uh, which is huge progress. Yeah, I saw that press release yesterday, which was uh, awesome. So, congratulations! Thank you. Um, it's from a again from the sort of solution that you're selling to enterprise uh, customers. So it's a, there's a, I guess it's an annual fee. Um, is there also a, is there someone that comes and helps implement this technology inside the institution? Um, and then that leads to this question of, look, anything using a digital asset uh, at this stage or crypto uh, is a bit clunky to get on board you know like if i want to go and trade bitcoin today i have to like fiat put it into some sort of exchange that accepts it yeah. trade it there's a free there's a spread and then i have to you know and then here comes the question of volatility and this sort of thing do you guys have a that's part of your tech stack that yeah, i guess you put in so we want to make it as simple as possible so you know we've been very public about the work we're doing with moneygram i'll be on stage later this morning with the ceo of moneygram mm -hmm. talking about the work they're doing and so we want MoneyGram to see a dollar peso quote. Right. What happens in the kind of plumbing of that transaction, at the end of the day, they just want to know that, hey, that's the quote. I need liquidity in Mexico, and if I can get it at that price, great, done, click. You know, what ends up happening is there's a trade from dollar into XRP. XRP then moves to an exchange in Mexico. Then there's a trade from XRP. You're selling the XRP and buying Mexican pesos. Right. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens. Frankly, we want to make that as simple as possible to the customer. All the customer really cares about is, I need a dollar peso quote. Right. I, I need $1,000 moved into Mexican pesos, and I need to do it right now. Yeah, so if the, whoever's trading on their internal treasury desk or whatever, you want to make that customer experience as seamless and... and right. Yeah. Because you know, anything, that, you know, anything that causes confusion... Uh, limits success. And it, you know, you asked earlier about you know, how some of these contracts work. I mean, you're right. When we go live with a bank, it isn't just, hey, it's like a Salesforce seat where you're just lighting up an instance in the cloud. You actually are deploying technology typically today behind a firewall, right? You're going and you know, we have integration engineers who fly around the world and you know, go on site with a bank, with a payment provider and help with that deployment. And yeah, that, that that's the nature of how this stuff works, and it's you know part of our business model. So when it comes to let's talk a little bit about volatility because I know that this is a big issue and a lot of people misunderstand this part of it, uh, the volatility of holding a fiat currency or other cryptocurrencies versus uh, using XRP for a transaction which is very fast and by virtue of the short amount of time that is actually takes to make a transaction, it should in theory be less volatile. But is there uh, a black swan of, you know, there could be a situation where there's a flash crash during those three seconds that it takes. That could, I mean, that, that's, that's a real risk, isn't it? You know, let's talk about volatility at large first. And we talk about is, is that a risk? I mean, at the most macro level, when you, you 
transact a low volatile asset like fiat, but it takes two to three days to transact, somebody is sell, somebody's taking that volatility risk for that two to three days. Now, what happens today is somebody is pricing that volatility. When you do a fiat transaction, somebody is selling you that volatility risk and it's embedded in the price. Now, today, by the way, oftentimes that's the bank you're working with. Sometimes they use somebody else. There's an FX desk. You know, mm-hmm. depends on which bank you're talking about who provides that insurance, if you will. Now, some people are like, look, we can't use crypto to enable these transactions because there's too much volatility. Volatility, though, is duration, is time, times volatility. And it turns out if you take a low volatile asset over a very lengthy time, which is about three days, is about 260,000 seconds, <laughs> or you have a low volatile, excuse me, a high volatile asset like XRP over a very, very, very short amount of time, it turns out there's less volatility risk in an XRP transaction than there is in fiat. Mm. Now, as you're describing, though, you know, somebody is somebody's selling you the risk mitigation in fiat because you don't even really think about it that way. Right. Like, Look, I, I priced it at that moment, but embedded in that price was somebody taking the, the settlement risk. That's right. Now today, because it's so fast, you don't have that in the crypto space. XRP, I mean, maybe you would need that in the Bitcoin space because a transaction is quite slow, relatively speaking. Yes. An XRP transaction, you know, is three to four seconds. And so is there a risk? We haven't yet seen the risk of a quote flash crash as you're describing. I'm not trying to pretend that's a zero risk. Mm-hmm. I think if it's a material risk, someone will come in and sell a product to risk mitigate that. I mean, there's Default market makers or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, somebody yeah. will build a product and it'll solve that problem. Right. And if there's right. enough demand for it, they'll, they'll do it today. There's, I, I'm not sure that'll ever be needed. I, I don't know. Uh, but right now it's, you know, because it's so fast, we haven't seen it be a problem. Sure. Sure. And, sure. and we're doing, you know, many millions of dollars a week, over on-demand liquidity. And yeah, so this isn't, we're way past an experimentation phase, right? This is actually real, it is working, it's at scale. Right, right, okay, fair enough. Um, okay, so last sort of question, and thanks for taking us through sort of the, the, the plumbing and technical side of, of your product uh, offering. Um, Ripple, the company, is uh, one of the crypto unicorns out there, and it's, it's, a, it's a strange one because um, you know, you've, you've taken venture funding, uh, and then you also have this digital asset, which you know, I don't know how the accounting works, but that's worth a lot of money. Um, a lot of people have, not a lot of people, a lot of projects I've seen have come uh, and done these ICOs, and they, haven't even, uh, they don't even have a main net, or, you know, I mean, I, I can think of a, a couple off the top of my head. Um, so you guys are in a unique situation where you might not necessarily need the funding uh, or you're well capitalized at this point, I would say. Um, how does that play out in the future as far as Ripple, the company? Um, you have your venture investors that obviously want to return. Um, and then, you know, do you plan to basically just grow the company separately, not separately, but like in the traditional venture uh, funding path to some sort of exit and then um, and then how does the digital asset play into the whole thing? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I'm glad that you, when you asked the question, you have an understanding that some of the market still have confusion about what is Ripple and what is XRP. And I think one of the most important things to understand is XRP is an open source mm-hmm. technology, the XRP ledger, the digital asset itself. You know, there's lots of participants in the XRP ecosystem. Ripple is certainly the largest amongst them, but there's a lot of other people doing things in the XRP ecosystem. And, you know, we think that's good for the whole category. Uh, you know, Ripple has shareholders, uh, as you meant, we did a seed financing back in 2012. It's before I was at the company. We did a series A in 2013, 2014 and a series B in 2015. And we haven't raised any money since, I guess that was 2016, the series B was, but we haven't done any financing, uh, since that time. 
And you know, we as you described, we're we're in a good position uh, in that we are now a lot of customers signing up uh, by virtue of owning some of this digital asset that has given us a, a strength in the balance sheet. You know, we put fifty million dollars into mm-hmm. MoneyGram mm-hmm. as an example, uh, and we made a bunch of investments across the crypto landscape, in, which we think is good for all of crypto. Sure. You know, we want all boats to rise. I think there still remains a lot of tribalism or religiousness within crypto. Uh, which I don't think is actually healthy for the whole system to grow. I fundamentally believe that Ripple will do better if the whole category does better. And so, you know, frankly, I'm rooting for the for everybody to do well. There's, I can't think of anybody in the crypto space that is quote competing with Ripple. And so I look at it and say, right. I want a lot of these projects to work. I think a lot of them are still in the experimentation phase, but I, I think it's good for Ripple and it's good for XRP. It's good for Bitcoin. It's good for Ether if everybody's doing well. To play devil's advocate, could could the could XRP have actually just been a private, corporate digital asset that you didn't actually offer to the public? I mean, that in theory, if it, it was just that, yeah, uh, that problem that you were trying to solve. I mean, then, then in theory, that could have been just a well, sort of. I mean, first of all, one clarification: we didn't, we Ripple didn't quote offer XRP to the public. I mean, sure. Uh, XRP, the ledger XRP existed before Ripple, the company was started. Some of the people who started XRP ledger started Ripple. So there's some common uh, heritage. But the the tricky part in what you describe is, could it work without some external market participation is effectively, I think, what you're asking. So let's think through that. So we've announced we are going live at the Australia. So we're live today at the Mexican peso through ODL. We're live with the Philippine peso. And we uh, are now live the Australian dollar. We've announced the intent to go live uh, with the Brazilian real. Now, if we go live and there's no liquidity, there's no clearing price between XRP and the Brazilian real, that's a problem. Right. Okay. So the fact that there's liquidity there organically, if you will, mm. I mean, because about 45 billion units of XRP trade out there, they're, they're not owned by Ripple, they're owned by other people, and they're, they're trading. Now, when we enter a market, there's liquidity, there's some liquidity there. We often will work with market makers to help make sure there's plenty of liquidity right. and the spreads are tight. But uh, if there was zero liquidity, that would actually make it hard to enter a new market. Towards the second half of our discussion, Brad and I discussed Ripple, the company, and XRP, the digital asset, and the important distinction between the two. XRP and the XRP ledger are open source technologies, and while Ripple may be one of the largest participants in that ecosystem, there are many other participants in the XRP ecosystem which will still exist whether or not Ripple, the company, succeeds. To gain a better understanding of the early days of the XRP ledger and the technology behind it, we jump to my discussion with David Schwartz. Chief Technology Officer at Ripple. David is one of the original architects of the Ripple Consensus Network. He begins by sharing some of his background, including his work developing encrypted cloud storage and enterprise messaging systems for organizations such as CNN and the NSA. Then we jump into a more technical discussion about Ripple's consensus network. To be honest, a lot of our discussion was way over my head at the time. But as always, David did an incredible job of explaining the technical details to me, a layman, in a non-technical fashion. Well, I was working for software companies and uh, internet service providers, building nationwide networks, and then doing secure messaging and cloud storage. And I kind of focused more on the crypto side because I I have a a strong math background. And I found Bitcoin in 2011, 
and I just kind of I kind of fell in love with it. It had a sort of sense of a sort of technical perfection where all of the pieces just kind of come together in a way that just I found really appealing. So I started to dig into what was going on with uh, Bitcoin. And uh, very quickly, Jed McCaleb st was starting a project to see if you could um, have a public blockchain without proof of work. He was starting to anticipate some of the problems that would happen with proof of work that it wouldn't deliver on the promise of decentralization. Mm. And so at first, that was the only idea we had. Like, do you have to have proof of work to have a blockchain? And the XRP ledger was the first blockchain that used something other than proof of work. And then we kind of, bu we kind of built a company to try to figure out how to get enterprise adoption. How, how, can you how can you match the cryptocurrency world with the sort of financial world? And I think there were a lot of people who, who were focusing on a sort of bottom-up strategy that like you would go directly to mass retail adoption and then that would be the way to change the world. I, I don't think that works very well. I think that, that, that you almost have to try a top-down approach. People will look at examples like the internet. The first adopters of the internet were the government. Mm. They were universities, and they were existing information service providers that found that the internet was a better solution. So I think we kind of pursued that kind of, what will it take to get enterprise adoption? What kind of infrastructure do we need to get the technology mature enough that you can have mass adoption? And I've been working on that, you know, since 2011. So uh, by saying, by, by dating it, timestamp at 2011, so you immediately answer the question of if you're Satoshi Nakamoto, because I know that's floating out there. Uh, so we'll go ahead and say perhaps you're not. No. Uh, <laughs> um, as far as how you, uh, you know, decided to tackle this solution, uh, the solution to the payments problem, I guess, or digital payments problem. Uh, so it is, it is true indeed that uh, Bitcoin initially uh, was meant to be a payment network. Uh, and now it's kind of because of the slow lag time and, and, and uh, p potential uh, uh, sort of 51% attack uh, that could happen. Uh, it, it seems like it's becoming more of like a digital gold uh, versus solving the payments thing. So um, I think it's interesting that uh, you guys had the foresight to kind of see that that sort of mining thing, uh, proof of work might come into, uh, might, might be a problem in the future and decide to start another venture, uh, especially from the way that you guys did it from sort of the enterprise adoption first. Uh, I think it's very clever and it's very smart. So was that the time that where you decided to start working on the XRP ledger? Yeah, it, it began as just this idea of could you, could, you could you do something other than proof of work? That was the very first idea. And Jed had the idea that we could use what is called a distributed agreement protocol. And there were existing distributed agreement protocols. It's just they, they had certain restrictions on them that made them not suitable for a public blockchain. So the question that Jed first hired me to answer is, can you re could we relax those restrictions without breaking the protocols? And it only took us a couple of months to realize that the answer to that was yes. But the next question that we had is like, what is that good for? Mm -hmm. You know, if you discovered a way to make a new material, but it's really expensive and it's really heavy and it's, it corrodes easily, you're like, oh crap, like we made this brilliant new material. <laughs> it's this clever combination, but it isn't good for anything. So we started to have to figure out like, what is this good for? And we realized very quickly that it had certain advantages over proof of work, including just that it could be cheaper, that it could be faster, but some that are a little bit more, more sort of in the weeds technically, that there isn't a dictator who chooses what 
what goes in each block. And so we started focusing on use cases that would take advantage of the benefits of the protocol that we had developed. And then over the next year or so, mostly Arthur Brito and I wrote the software for the XRP Ledger and the features that we built to take advantage of the characteristics of the distributed agreement protocol were things like a decentralized exchange and key rotation and other features that the XRP Ledger still has to this day. Right. So, so from uh, in its core, uh, the consensus protocol that Ripple, uh, the XRP Ledger runs off of is completely different than, say, Bitcoin's proof of work. Uh, maybe in layman's terms, <laughs> you could explain to us the basic differences there and then expand upon uh, how the XRP Ledger, like, why is it so fast and how, how is it so efficient? You know, how did you, how did you make it so fast, right? Well, I kind of approached Bitcoin the way you might approach an alien artifact. Like you find an alien artifact and it does something incredible that you couldn't do. You know, it uses very little energy or it goes right faster. It has some characteristic. And you, what you want to do is you want to like from an engineering standpoint, you want to take it apart. And one of the first questions that you want to know is like, does it have something you've never seen before, like unobtainium? Is there some unobtainium in there that someone discovered? Or is it just a clever combination of existing parts? And of course, Bitcoin doesn't have any unobtainium. It's a clever combination of parts. And then you look at, well, what are the parts and how are they combined and what are the benefits you get out of it? And then it's like, well, can I combine those same parts differently or change some of the parts to get different benefits? And a lot of people at the time, and I, that would include me, uh, thought that the proof of work was like the unobtainium. The proof mm -hmm. of work was like the thing that Bitcoin had that nothing else had. And it's true that that was sort of like the last piece. That was the piece that previous systems didn't have. But really, its secret was a clever combination of existing pieces. And those key pieces that the XRP ledger also has is that all transactions are public, all state is public, and everybody knows the rules. So I don't have to trust anybody else. If someone says, hey, I have two Bitcoins, like as I show me the transactions, let me check mm -hmm. that they're valid. We kept all of that. And so the only thing that we're left with, the only problem that you had to solve was what we call the double spend problem, which is if someone submits two transactions that conflict, how do you make sure that everybody eventually agrees on the same transaction? And what we rapidly discovered is that that problem is actually much easier than it initially appears. For one thing, if a tra for one thing, we, we, don't, we don't care what dishonest people can tell themselves. Like, I can write, I can modify my XRP ledger software, or my Bitcoin software to say I have all the Bitcoins. If I can't get anybody else to believe me, that's fine. So what we care about is if, what we care about is that it works for honest people and that malicious people can't lie to honest people. And it turns out that that breaks down very quickly. For example, if a transaction is invalid, there's no problem. No honest person will ever think it's valid. It present, invalid transactions present no problem at all. Right. And perfect transactions present no problem at all. If a transaction is absolutely perfect, every honest person will, will say yes to it. There's no problem. It turns out you actually only have one problem, which is what I would call a wobbler. It's a transaction that might seem valid in some contexts and might seem invalid. So an example of a wobbler would be I have one unit of value and I have one transaction to send it to Alice and one transaction to send it to Bob. And if you see the one to Alice, you might think the one to Bob is invalid. If you see the one to Bob, you might think the one to Alice is invalid. These are wobblers. They're, they're, there's no, they're not fundamentally broken, but they have a context in which they could be invalid. And all you need to do to solve wobblers is agree to sort of postpone one of them. So if we confront the two of them at the same time and we just agree to, if we agree to execute both of them, there's no problem. We'll execute them in the same order and we'll both agree on the first one's valid and the second right. one's invalid. The problem is if you execute just one and I execute just the other, 
And so all we have to do on that is just agree to sort of wait one round. You say, okay, I'll ex we'll execute one and we'll just wait on the other. And what the XRP Ledger's consensus protocol does, it essentially agrees to defer transactions that some people think are valid and other people think are wobblers. And that's really the only, it, it's, it sounds perverse that that's, that, that weird little technical thing is actually all that's left. That's really all proof of work is doing. That's quite interesting. So, so the, the mechanism by which you're able to, I guess, batch them so you, you know which one's a wobbler or not is, uh, is basically by the validator nodes on the network that they kind of go in some sort of order or, or there's a certain con consensus or majority that needs to be uh, voting in the right way, so to speak, right? Right. So what will happen is each validator in a round will say, these are the transactions that I think are valid and should be executed this round. And then they actually go through a process of agreeing. Mm -hmm. And the agreement process is biased in favor of excluding transactions. And the reason you need to do that is because otherwise it might never terminate. Like if people could keep introducing new transactions sort of into the discussion, you might never finish and have agreement. Right. So what you do is you sort of work on a process of excluding transactions. Now you might think that a malicious actor might be able to keep excluding valid transactions, but here's the interesting part. The only valid reason, the only reason an honest participant would exclude a valid transaction was because they didn't see it on time. Like if you saw a valid trans, if it paid the right fee and there wasn't a right. conflicting transaction and everything was fine, the only reason you wouldn't vote to include it is because if you saw it too late. Well, if you saw it too late in the previous round, you certainly didn't see it too late in this round. Right. Like if you told me you didn't see it in the previous round on time, and the previous round came before this round, you necessarily saw it before this round. So That's no right. honest participant can say an, a valid transaction shouldn't be included two rounds in a row. So what happens to that participant then if he's not honest? So the, the honest participants identify the dishonest participants by them violating these rules and they simply stop listening to them. So ah. the thesis is the honest participants will stick around and the dishonest participants, as soon as they do something bad, they will get excluded. I see. So uh, and a honest or dishonest participant, uh, that is basically a validator node. Right. Each one of those represents a validator node. Uh, okay, so, and then there's the other question that I know has been uh, out there asked many times is uh, the sort of centralization of the validator nodes. How many does Ripple, the company, own? And does that pose a, an issue out there? You know, I'm, I'm curious, what is it, like, does it cost money to set up one of these nodes? Like, how does, it, how does that work? And uh, you know how many nodes are there out there right now? And you know, so I would start out by saying that the validators don't really control the network. They're really just agreeing to advance the ledger. Um, they can't. They, there's nothing. There's nothing a validator node can really do other than like stall the network. Like if a validator node refuses to come to an agreement, then it could break the network. But then everybody, it has to sign all of its messages. So it's kind of it's kind of like the same thing with Bitcoin. Like mining either works or it doesn't. And if mining works, like you, you don't really you, you shouldn't really care about it. It's, right. it, it it's not really it's not really something that affects your ability to interact with the ledger uh, that said the cost to run a mining node can be from very cheap depend it depends on how you want to do it if you just want to run a validator and you want to do the minimum necessary there is uh, someone who sent me a picture of a validator running on like a $300 computer in their living room next to their <laughs> TV and that works just fine um, 
we would kind of prefer to see validators that were more maintained and higher quality because you don't need a lot of them. Uh, qual quality is definitely more important than quantity here. If you could have 32 validators run by 32 completely different entities uh, that were very reliable, that'd be great. And if any one of them like becomes unreliable, then you would just, you know, we would hope people would stop listening to that validator and listen to some other validator. Um, we're trying to get down to the point where Ripple is one valid, where Ripple is running just one right. validator, and we have at least like 32 of them out there. And you know, and that's and that, you know, that's fine. You don't need our permission to run a validator. Sure. You can just download the software, fire it up, and literally you enter one command and you're a validator. You're just like, I want to be a validator. You're a validator. That doesn't mean that anybody's listening to you. But you know you can then sort of convince people that you're that you're operating reliably and that they should try to come to agreement with you to advance the ledger. Right, and so yeah, and so go back going back to your previous argument, it's essentially it's almost like game theory as the like the market will decide uh, in in the long run whether if you're honest or you're dishonest. If you're dishonest, then eventually you would hope that the rest of the people on the network, the ledger would ignore you, ignore you basically what you're. You have two choices. You can pretend to be honest. And the longer you do that, that's fine. At some point, presumably, like if you pretend to be honest forever, well, that's great. That's fine. It doesn't matter. At some point, and really about the only thing that you can do is you can try to censor or you can stop advancing the ledger. But in order to do that, you have to sign the statements that you're doing. The reason people are listening to you is because they're coming from your validator. And we would hope that if the people, other people using the network want the network to work, and if they don't, why are they using the network? Right. They would then see who was provably being malicious and just stop listening to them. Um, it, it is, it is uh, a different philosophy. It is a different design. Most of the other systems are using incentives. My argument is that incentives force a race to the bottom. Like mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. If you're a Bitcoin miner, you want to make money mining. If, you're, if it costs you more money to run a miner than somebody else, you're just going to go out of business. You're going to lose money. Um, and so it forces a race to the bottom. And so miners are like running in the most weird corners of the world with unreliable power and cheap hardware. And if it breaks, that's fine. They just stop. They stop making some money and they're right. okay with that because they'll, they're making money while they're operating. Uh, but their incentives are not aligned. Everybody who mines increases the mining difficulty for everybody else. So right. it becomes this sort of this sort of race to the bottom with misaligned incentives. If the only incentive to run a validator is that you want the network to be more reliable, all of the incentives are aligned. And as long as the cost is low, and as long as there's some people, some set of people who find the network useful, if there aren't 32 people who find the network useful enough to run one computer, then it probably <laughs> should die. You know, it probably doesn't deserve to keep running. Again, uh, it's worked for a couple of years. It is, a, it is a somewhat newer technology, and I think we got it right, and time will tell. Are the people that are, say, of the 32 that are running enterprise-grade validator nodes, uh, are they... Uh, customers of yours or partners or just friendly uh, XRP uh, entities out All there? of the above. There's a lot of them that are universities and some of them are doing ah. it for research purposes and some of them are doing it just because they want to improve the health mm -hmm. of the ecosystem. Some of them are businesses or investors that have positions in XRP. Some of them are just XRP community members. Some of them are Ripple partners. Yeah, it varies. And I think variation is what you want. Um, what, what you don't want, like the nightmare scenario, the worst case scenario is that the validators sort of collude against a particular party. And so if they're, the more diverse they are, the less likely they are. My friend, my friend Arthur Brito, one of the other developers, um, he would say like, I don't trust Hamas and I don't trust the CIA and I don't trust like the government of Israel, but they're not gonna collude against me, right? right? right, 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 right. I mean, it kind of, it's kind of silly. 
it's an unusual type of trust. You're not trusting them to act in your interest, or you're not trusting them not to do specific things like in general, you're trusting them not to align against you. Right. And and the hope is if if the stakeholders of XRP, the people who are using the ledger, don't want it to be fair and they don't want it to be censorship resistant, then it won't be. There's no power that can force a system to be fair and wonderful if the people using it don't want it to be. What you want is a system that enables censorship resistant if that's what its users want. And if validators were to somehow like start colluding to censor transactions or colluding to stop the network, we would hope that the users would stop listening to those validators because they find the network less useful if it behaves that way. But an interesting thing about public blockchains is the, and the lack of counterparties and the lack of centralization is like, if I were the centralized operator of Bitcoin or the XRP ledger, I could promise you things that you might want. Like I could promise you that there won't be censorship. I could promise you that there'll never be more than 21 million Bitcoins. I could promise you things. Mm -hmm. But since there is no centralized operator, there's nobody who can promise you those things. So it's nice that there's nobody who can betray the promises. But it's kind of not nice that there's nobody who can make the promises. These systems will do what their stakeholders want them to do. Right. As we saw in the Bitcoin fork, people disagreed over what the block size should be. And so nobody could say, no, the block size shall be X, and that's what it's going to be. They kind of had to fight it out. And so that's kind of the downside of decentralized systems. So uh, it sounds like... Uh, huh. Um, so from from your perspective, what's the greatest risk to the XRP ledger right now? Is it uh, a handful of validators act bad actors that are in there that all decide to collude uh for no incentive <laughs> for whatever reason they want to and basically uh disrupt the consensus protocol i don't think so because i think even if they did that it would kind of be a short-term speed bump the things that i worry the most about is like a defect in the software that nobody's found yet, because mm. um, who knows like what that could what what damage that could cause in the short term. Almost anything you can sort of repair if you have a historical snapshot, you can rewind. But obviously, it really undermines comp. Like the value proposition is that these transactions are irreversible. Let's say I found some bug or exploit that let me do something on the XRP ledger I'm not supposed to be able to do. Like I found a way to create a whole bunch of XRP. Mm -hmm. We could agree to like rewind the ledger. But then anybody who accepted that XRP as payment for something, they would they would lose out. One of the biggest things that I think we did in the XRP Ledger software that I'm very proud of is we built what we call an invariant checker, which is a specific security module to detect like any transaction that violates a key rule. Prior to that, if you said to me, like, I'm worried that someone's going to find some way to create new XRP and, like, break the system, and I would have to say to you, and this is a terrible answer, look at the code, and you'll see there's no place that anyone can create new XRP. Look at these thousands and right, thousands right. of lines of code. And if you find a way to create XRP, tell me, and I'll, we'll, we'll get it fixed. But, like, I don't think there is one. Do you think there is? Like, that's a terrible answer. Right. What, I, what you want to be able to do is point to a line of code that says, this line of code says nobody should ever be able to create XRP. Mm -hmm. And Nick Bugalis and I developed a system called the invariant checker. And what it does is it executes transactions in what we call a sandbox. It okay. executes the transaction without actually making any permanent changes to the ledger. And then there's the invariant checker looks at the sandbox and says, did this transaction create XRP? Did this transaction do anything that's not supposed to happen? And if it did, if there's a bug that allowed a transaction to do something terrible, it throws the sandbox away and puts an entry in the ledger that said, this transaction broke a system rule. Right. Fortunately, that's never happened. 
But but those kinds of scenarios that that we you know, we put all this effort into preventing them sure. from happening. But there's no way that I can promise you that you know there's no bug. Right. So that that's really what I think is the biggest the biggest threat. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, and, and then there's also the trust issue. Even even if something like this came up and you were able to resolve it, then there's the community trust issue, which, uh, I mean, for whatever reason, the community is quite uh, polarized in how they view the various uh, projects, uh, unfortunately. I mean, yeah, well, you know, the Concorde had no accidents and it was like the safest airplane. And then it had two <laughs> accidents in a short span of time and it went from being the very safest to one of the least safe. When you have such a good record, you're, you know, if you look at the XRP ledger's uptime and you look at like, you know, there's never been a reverse transaction, there's never been censorship, there's never been a rewind. It's like, well, can I promise you that yeah. I, that's good evidence to suggest that there might not be? But of course, any, one incident, you would go from a hundred percent to a number that it's got a bunch of nines in yeah. it, but still you, you really want that enterprise level of reliability and that makes development very slow. Anytime you want to add a new feature, you take risk and you know, a, a terrible, a, a terrible answer to people is like, you've been relying on this blockchain for billions of dollars in value and it hasn't done anything terrible. I've made some changes to it. Rely on that for billions of dollars yeah. and we'll see if it does anything <laughs> terrible. Like that's, un, that's, and that really, uh, to some extent, obviously we're, we're as careful as we can be, but mm -hmm. really, you know, with other pieces of software, you might tell people, okay, some people try the new version, some stay on the old right. version. It's hard to do that in a blockchain because everybody has to agree on everything. And so we put out new versions and we have test networks, but people will never use the test network the way they'll use the real network. And that it, that's, it's a little scary. It makes development <laughs> slow. The pace of development was super fast when we had zero customers and nobody was using That's the XRP right. ledger. Yeah. And the day that we opened it up to the world is the day that development just became, you know, maybe one tenth the speed. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Uh, and then just for for to to make it clear, the XRP ledger uh, is a it's its own entity. Uh, Ripple is a company that uh, sells enterprise software solutions to to financial institutions and banks uh, that happen to use the XRP ledger and XRP, the digital asset, in their enterprise technology uh, package platform. Th that's exactly right. The XRP ledger is open to anyone. Anyone can use it. It's a public blockchain. You don't have to ask Ripple's permission. And if Ripple says no, you can use it anyway. Um, yeah, Ripple's a company. We're a, traditional co we're a traditional company. We have shareholders. We have mm -hmm. a CEO. We have a CTO, which would be me. We have customers, and we can provide you technical support. You know, you can't call up the XRP ledger or Bitcoin. You know, those are those are public blockchains. Yes, Bitcoin, Ethereum, XRP. Uh, all I, I I feel kind of tick off the box of okay. There's a certain use case. I don't know whether it's right. Maybe Bitcoin's digital gold. Ethereum might be the smart contract platform. Uh, XRP, uh, this payments thing. Someone coming new into the system, you know, a lot of talents accruing from Wall Street and new grads now, they want to go into blockchain, they don't want to go anywhere else. Uh, any sort of areas, segments, verticals that you feel needs disruption? And it might be stuff that you guys are already working on at Ripple, because I know that you guys are doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes as well. Uh, what, you know, what, what, what piece of advice could you give someone coming into this well, space? Well, I, th I think where you're going to see it first is like the more adjacent the vertical is to the verticals that we have already, the more, uh, the earlier and the better the target. So payments were terrible, we're making payments better. And like store of value, means of exchange were terrible, we're making those things better. So the logical next thing is like, what is something that's terrible because payments are terrible? What is something that's terrible because we don't have a good store of value? If we have a better store of value, so, and what I would give as examples of that are things like lending, 
things like trade finance, things like sort of token, like equity settlement, tokenization of assets. Like I want exposure. I, I live in New Zealand and I want exposure to Apple stock. Mm-hmm. Like how do mm-hmm. I get it? Right. Like, or I live in Brazil, but I'd rather have exposure to the dollar than the Brazilian real. Like those kind of things that are adjacent, that are really close and adjacent to payments. And what I would also, what I would also, and this is a little crazy, is like, if you want to have small companies that compete with things that big companies do, like like Airbnb, for example, is a big company. Right. They have a large number of payment engineers that allow them to take money in and may pay money out around the world, and that's what enables them to be so big. But if I want to compete with them, like let's say I know the Portland, Oregon area super well, and I'm going to inspect every property, and I'm going to come up with an algorithm to help them price it right, and I'll adjust their pricing to take advantage of supply and demand. I'm going to be fantastic. I'm going to be the best, like the Airbnb of Portland, Oregon. But if my first step is I have to hire 200 payment engineers, that business is never going to get sure. off the ground. So the thing is, is like, who can provide me that type of infrastructure at a one-stop shop? And then what can I do once I have that? Where I don't have to, if I want to be an Amazon or if I want to be an Uber, and I have to spend these millions and millions of dollars like with on getting my payments right or getting my ability to move money around the globe, my, my treasury functions. Like, if I can do all those things super efficiently, Who's going to give me the one-stop service, and then what are the new businesses that are going to become possible because they don't have to spend all of that money right. building up that infrastructure? That's like where we're going to go next, I think. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Um, David, thanks again for your time. Uh, last two questions are kind of related, uh, but it's basically, who's Joel's cat, and what is the best place to find you, follow you, and harass you on on whatever social media platform you're on. Well, I'll, go, I'll answer in the other order. The best social media platform to find me on is Twitter, at Joel Katz. That's where I'm, I'm the most active. I, you might say I'm addicted to Twitter. Um, <laughs> I I, I, kind of, I kind of am. I kind of like that it's platform. It's great for, for sentiment and for jumping into conversations you probably shouldn't be jumping, <laughs> jumping into. It's a lot of fun. It's it's just weird that like like some random person can respond to the president and hundreds of people, thousands of people who are looking at what the president said are seeing what some random person yeah. said. Yeah. And then some like other person who's a famous celebrity will respond to that yeah. random person <laughs> responding to the celebrity. It's like, oh my God, like this huge celebrity just responded to this random guy from Arkansas or whatever. Yep, I mean, yep. I, I kind of like that. It's great. Um, so Joel, the Joel Katz thing came from when I was in high school. I had a friend who was setting up a bulletin board system, which is like a pre-internet like communication system. And he asked me if I wanted an account. And I said, yes. And he asked me if I wanted to use my real name. And I said, no. I didn't know what I was going to do. And it's actually kind of an amusing story. Ren and Stimpy was, was a show oh, on MTV. Sure. And he was a fan of, of Ren and Stimpy. So he made up a name for me. Stimpy's name is Stimpson J. Cat. And so he said, you'll be Stimpson J. Katz. And I used that name for a while, but then I started to do more serious stuff. And I'm like, I need a less ridiculous <laughs> name. So I took some inspiration from 3M, which was originally called Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And they went through a rebrand over time to change their name to 3M. So I went from Stimson J. Katz to Stimson Joel Katz, because you got to have a middle name. That's right. And then I went from Stimson Joel Katz to S. Joel Katz, because sometimes people who have a weird yeah, first yeah, name. Yeah. Will, and then I just dropped the S and I was Joel Katz. There you go. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, thank you so much for explaining the story. And we'll, with that, we'll end. Uh, really appreciate the time and really excited about what you guys are building at Ripple. And uh, we look forward to tracking your progress. My pleasure. Great thank talking you. to you, Jay. All right. 
Next up is an excerpt from my discussion with Marcus Treacher, who is the SVP of Customer Success at Ripple. Marcus has over 30 years of experience in transaction banking and payment technology, including 12 years in global leadership roles at HSBC. He served as a member of the global board of SWIFT from 2010 to 2016, and prior to that, he held leadership positions at Citigroup and Accenture. Marcus begins by sharing with us some more details about the 300-plus customers that are using Ripple right now, and gives us a closer look at the unique experience that Ripple provides to its customers globally. What do you spend most of your day working on? And it might be completely different every single day, but what would you say takes up the majority of your time as, uh, you know, the SVP of customer success? It's, it's in the title. I spend all my time with customers. So I'm a very lucky guy. I can get to work with very small startup, wonderful innovation teams, the biggest banks in the world, digital banks, platform companies, they're all our customers. So I spend most of my time making sure we're giving our customers um, a service which enables them to add value for their own users around the world. And also spending time getting feedback so we can fine tune our product and we can guide our roadmap. And also spending a lot of time with, with helping our customers adopt our technology, integrate it in new ways and helping them develop really kind of world-beating applications on their mobile devices or in other, 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 other services, which kind of bring the Ripple vision to life. Got it. So, so, so it's literally from, from onboarding a customer, trying to f- figure out the solution that would work best for their organization, no matter how la- large or small it is, uh, all the way through uh, to working with them on a daily basis just to make sure that everything is, is uh, the relationship is intact and everything works. That's absolutely right. So um, Ripple can enable a, a bank or a payment company <clears throat> to completely revolutionize all of its services. If you look at the payment world, actually there are many, many, many different payment use cases that banks and payment companies offer today. So paying friends and family, funding, let's say, property you may have overseas, small companies receiving funding, paying workforce, paying suppliers, it it goes on. So what usually happens is a customer will use Ripple initially for, let's say, one corridor, one country, maybe India to to, to, to Thailand, Mm -hmm. for example, or Middle East into, into Sri Lanka. And then for the corridor, they'll use one service it might be remittance payments for individuals when that works they then move on to open up more corridors they may uh, create more services let's say for small companies big companies they may many of them actually run workshops with us to kind of co-create new services that we could enable them to offer that Mm. aren't possible today so most of my work is really about the journey as you say it's from the initial onboarding of a customer so we help that we design how they are going to implement a news ripple and our project teams deliver that work with our customers and then our account management teams then work with our customers we allocate uh, key customers to specific account managers around the world um, I really grow the use of Ripple with them and make sure that we're giving them strong, clear success, both in terms of their top line numbers, their, their P&L, their market share, as well as the 
efficiency which we can deliver for them or help them to deliver in their operation because the Ripple network is far more effective and efficient for uh, the banks than the legacy networks. And we also have our support teams globally for tech support. So it's a whole, if you like, the whole service we offer mm -hmm. from the initial sound. It's because it's annuity. You know, the payment business is really about um, working steadily, thick and thin, building out use, building out volume. It's, it's, it's a long game we play with our customers. Sure. Well, you certainly have your hands full. I think the, yesterday there was the press release that said there's 300 or over 300 institutions or customers that uh, are onboarded now on, on, on the RippleNet. Um, and so and that number is only going to go one direction, Marcus. Yes. So your job is basically only going to be more and more uh, yeah, full. <laughs> it is, yes, it is. And each of those customers themselves um, contain many more customers, if you like. So, you know, um, let's pick... Santander, one of those 300 is Santander. Santander itself has many, many projects it's running on Ripple. It has many connections it's running on Ripple. Um, there is a whole um, line of really interesting, really powerful projects we're running with Santander, one of many, many of our, of our customers. So we're also doing a lot of work in kind of really simplifying and improving how we onboard customers so enabling us to serve very large numbers of customers in a very efficient way as we grow. And that's a great challenge to have to be able to work with. Um, when I joined Ripple, you know, we had, I think, one office outside San Francisco, that was uh, Sydney. We now have 10 offices, uh, including uh, London, as you know, Singapore here, Reykjavik as well, for example. Wow. So <laughs> Sao Paulo, uh, Dubai, Mumbai, New York. Yeah, so we're growing Tokyo, we're growing very quickly uh, globally. And one of the key things that we are really focusing on is how we gear up to support a very large number of customers because the, the, the volume is growing and the customers right. are growing very quickly and do that in a way that's very effective, um, but also delivers the value to them and the service to them as, they, as, as the volume of customers grows. Absolutely. It's a, it's a huge undertaking. And, and I imagine that... Um, so what, if you had to, just quick numbers here, if you had to break down the percentage of, let's say, the 300 customers that are onboarded onto your platform, how many would you say are sort of larger financial institutions versus startups? And then how many of those 300 actually, is it just the sort of blanket starter package of Ripple that, they, that can easily be uh, integrated into their, in, their, in their systems? Or how many demand a more bespoke solution? Okay, so it's first off uh, a very broad um, categorization. About half of our customers are banks mm -hmm. and half are fintech payment providers, 50-50. Okay. You know, if you dig a bit deeper, within the banks, about, um, say about 25% are the really big houses, you know, the, the, the Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi, right. the, the Santander, the, uh, the Standard Chartered, um, the, 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 the large institutions. Um, about you know the rest are digital banks, startup banks, really interesting um, innovator banks, which we love to work with as well because they they can integrate in very very new ways with the Ripple technology. In the um, the payment provider half of the customer base, again about half are pretty major large established payment providers, um, massive volumes, well established mm -hmm. organisations looking to 
put much more efficiency into their payment networks. Right. And the other half really are, you know, early stage startups, just companies getting moving who we refer to as growers. They're organizations that we can help grow and Ripple grows with them. So as a company, we have, I think, a wonderful range of customers enabling us to really innovate, but also innovate at scale. That's really, really important. In terms of the the type of use, um, the the basic um, kind of starter yeah. use of Ripple <laughs> right. is the is the remittance payment. That's mm-hmm. a very easy thing to uh, understand mm-hmm. for banks and payment companies to um, um, uh, get comfortable with. Right. And also, it's addressing a real pain point in the uh, the global payment world today: um, the underbanked, the unbanked in Africa, in parts of Asia, and Latin America. It really has value. So that's a, that's a kind of a, a very um, important starter usage sure. um, for Ripple. Customers then often move on to the commercial side, so moving into serving small companies, SMEs, mm-hmm. mid mid-sized companies, um, and that's where you get into more kind of operational value add services. Maybe collecting more effectively, right. paying staff more effectively, where. It's not so much the speed that's important, but the certainty and the comfort that your payment really has got to where it's going. The trust, right. The trust is important. The other point, too, is if you look at the other end of the equation, every payment sent by a Ripple customer ends up with a Ripple customer before mm-hmm. it's dispersed. So many of our customers focus on being inbound, being receivers of payment, almost like the um, the correspondent banking, the agency banking model that right. we're familiar with. Sure. And that's a powerful play because it means that um, banks that have strong clearing ability in a country or region, Siam Commercial Bank is mm-hmm. a great example of a strong clearing bank in, um, in Thailand that is taking a lot of volume from Ripple from customers worldwide mm-hmm. who are serving their own customers who are making payments into Thailand and they right. make that very, very high speed into Thai prompt pay to pay friends, family, or um, or companies in Thailand. And that's a very, very important role that many banks find very attractive, you know, to be that inbound player sure. and therefore to pick up that volume. Right, right. Um, okay, well, thanks for in, uh, introducing and, and explaining that a little bit further. Um, and then so as far as, uh, you know, the technology goes, once the customer is onboarded, uh, you know, part of your uh, job is to hand ho- handhold them and, and potentially... Uh, come up with bespoke solutions uh, regarding their 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 various needs, um, and then I guess it's a matter of basically presenting really the the data and the numbers to them. And and uh, you know I was talking to Brad earlier about sort of the on demand liquidity product, which is now being uh, more and more onboarded. I think twenty four was the in the same press release you guys announced, which is great. And I think that um, is it just a matter of basically getting them familiar with the product and then seeing the potential cost savings for them to eventually, uh, you know, adapt, adopt that, that technology as well in-house? Yes, it's, um, I guess the first thing is to um, get a bank or payment company comfortable that we're delivering value. Right. So often we get a corridor running, we demonstrate the value in, in nearly every case, um, our customers are delighted, surprised, and really enthused about what we can achieve because most people are still thinking in old ways. So we have a, a very big impact when we go live into production. And that leads to more usage and more um, 
application of, of, of the software. I think it's also important just to kind of paint a very quick picture about what we mean by RIP, what we're kind of bringing uh, to the market. Um, in effect, we have three kind of killer apps, three really critical mm-hmm. elements of Ripple, which we think is collectively so impactful. One is we've created a, a governance um, structure. So Ripple's rules, it's uh, the, um, the methods of moving money between our customers. That's governed by our customors in a governance body that, that we set up with them. So it means that Ripple is serving a genuine community of customers, banks and payment companies, which work together as a community, not just customers of Ripple, but their own community. That's really, really important. Um, and that model enables customers to then find other customers easily. Matchmaking is mm-hmm. the more straightforward. Connecting up is much easier. Going kind of one level into the Ripple solution, the next really important piece is the interconnection. So if you're making a payment for somebody cross-border, you need to be able to move ownership of money from your account or wallet, maybe right. in my case in sterling, let's say to an account um, in Hong Kong dollars in a few seconds. And we do that by kind of synchronizing the ledgers of the banks, our customers, either either end, the sending bank and the receiving bank. And that kind of very, very fast connection between banks um, using what we call the interledger method, mm-hmm. interledger protocol, that's what moves a payment in an instant atomically. So uh, banks globally are mostly using that uh, immediate payment element of Ripple under the rules that, that, that they, they govern. Um, and that means they can pay each other in microseconds, incredibly fast, in now up to 45 countries, and very soon, you know, global coverage. Mm-hmm. We're, we're well mm-hmm. on the way to global coverage. Um, and that itself is an awesome game changer, absolutely awesome. However, there's a third play, which is actually arguably much more impactful. Mm-hmm. And that's to attack the liquidity problem. Right. So today, the numbers vary, but you can be comfortable, comfortable quoting 10 trillion to maybe 20 trillion dollars locked up around the world. Any one moment, all the time, for payments to come eventually into a country and disperse. It's a huge load mm. and drag on the global economy. So by developing our on-demand liquidity solution, we can address that problem. So as well as enabling payments to move hyperfast, mm-hmm. we can deliver the liquidity into the country, into the account that the payment is going to run over at point when required. So it means that our banks and uh, payment company customers can in future hold their currency, hold their value in their home currency, which far, far less risk, and deliver that those liquidity pools at point of need. It's got three layers. It's the governance, hyper-fast delivery of payment between you and me, individuals via banks, and also enabling our banks to manage their liquidity far, far more efficiently than they ever can today. Right. So I think that third layer is where, where, where most people, unless you are in sort of the banking system or are familiar with that, don't really know how it works. Uh, yeah. But that, that is essentially, I mean, that's, that's money. Let's say my bank, uh, SCB, let's use that example. For me to, to make remittance or payments into Thailand, I, will ba- I would basically have to deposit a certain amount of money 
with SCB. Is that correct? That's correct. And then, and then that just sits there when it could be on my books. I mean, that's working capital or, or whatever, right? That's I correct. Mean, yeah, okay, so that's a huge, it's a game changer, basically. It's yeah. massive, yeah, it's yeah. massive. And, and, and the, the beauty of what we're doing at Ripple, um, we're not just building solutions looking for problems, like many blockchain companies do, actually. We've always been focused on taking friction out of cross-border payments. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. And because we have that mindset of we're going to fix a problem and we're going to deploy the best and most creative minds in the industry against that problem, that's how we've moved so far with the blockchain stack. And actually, the hyper-fast delivery of value over Interledger, the on-demand liquidity that kind of complements that very powerfully, they both deploy elements of blockchain fine, fine-tuned for those um, solutions. The use of XRP, the use of the consensus ledger, perfectly designed and, and fine-tuned for on-demand liquidity, the application of cryptography for interledger, the protocol that we created and we given to the World Wide Web for interledger, perfectly tuned for creating an internet mm-hmm. uh, for value. And we got there because we focused on the problem and from day one, we've been working with banks and payment companies from day one. Right. And it's a real world. And most of the the history of Ripple is a combination of, in my view, my humble view, you know, fantastic innovative creativity and real hard graft, grinding out solutions, fixing problems, mm-hmm. speaking to customers. We're doing here with the Swell Conference, getting feedback right. and ideas. That's how you do it. Marcus, let's let's take the last few minutes here, and I just want to talk about Asia specifically. Uh, obviously, the Sawal Conference is here in Singapore, and that's that's uh, there's definitely a statement there. Um, and you guys have uh, a lot of partnerships here within the region. Uh, maybe you could highlight uh, some of the key partnerships that you have here. Um, any plans that you have going forward with Asia and the region, and uh, what excites you about? about uh, Ripple's growth here. Okay, um, I'll I'll do it in reverse order. Uh, (laughs) We're massively excited about Asia and how Asia is driving fintech. I mean, some of the innovations around wallet technology, um, open network technology is pretty awesome. And that's, you know, the key reason why we're focusing so much on Asia and why we've recently opened up a permanent office um, in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And uh, we continue to build in Asia, so basically, basically India and and um, and, um, and Singapore, but building up from there into other other countries around China, Japan, Korea, very very important. Um, we see Asia really leading the charge into you know, kind of almost reforming the world's financial models in really powerful ways that bring more people into the banking world. Um, enable people to you know, benefit financial services all over Asia. And also, as Asia kind of leads the innovation, um, other regions are following, so like Africa, Middle East, Latin America. And we're seeing the um, this what used to be called the emerging markets, arguably most have emerged very, very well um, <laughs> in the past 10 years. Seeing them, I guess because they have a fresh view of how finance could work versus being kind of locked into old thinking, leading the charge. Um, I mean, Ripple went to market really agnostically. So we weren't over-focusing on any one region initially when we went out of the USA. 
having done that on an almost like a um, an egalitarian basis, mm-hmm. Asia, Middle East, Latin America are by far more traction than the the OECD world, and, and we think it's because of two reasons. One, they're far less served by the old banking networks. Right. So if it's painful for me to move money in Europe, it's infinitely more painful to do so in Africa and parts of Southeast Asia. And secondly, you have this, you know, this wonderful demographic of you know, young, energized, mm-hmm. um, can-do people driving change and thinking differently. And you put those two things together and you get something very special, which is a complete transformation in goods and services, right. how things work and how people interact with each other. So we think Asia is a fantastic place to be. Um, and many of our most active and fast moving customers are in Asia, which is your, your, I guess your first question. I can call out um, SBI, SBI Remit in Japan, mm-hmm. um, you know, phenomenal partner of Ripple. Uh, CoinOne in, in, in South Korea right. is growing fantastically, tremendous partner. Uh, Ripple, Syme Commercial Bank, mm-hmm. um, Standard Charter Bank in, in a hometown, yeah. uh, <laughs> Singapore. Um, many of the Indian banks we work with, um, Indusind, Kotak, Yes Bank, Yes Bank, Axis Bank, recently won HDFC in mm-hmm. India, sure. QMB in Qatar, Saudi British Bank in Saudi Arabia. Wow. Um, we got NCB, Saudi Arabia, uh, Raji Bank. So there's a, a very long list of, um, of I think, really powerful players. BDO, uh, major bank in the Philippines, which we're delighted to have gone live with recently with a payment flow uh, from Al Ansari in United Arab, Emir- Arab Emirates. Rack Bank. Um, it just goes on. Right. Payments flows into Asia. And we're seeing these corridors build up really quickly. Back to my earlier point, the initial use cases have all been remittances, mm-hmm. paying friends and family you know, into Asia from the Middle East and other parts of the world. Very quickly, that's moving to commercial flows. And actually, in key corridors, like into Philippines and into Mexico, we are now moving in with the on-demand liquidity service to, again, make the payment super efficient. Um, we've had some wonderful experience in MoneyGram, for example, where 10% of their funding payments into Mexico now go over Ripple, ODL, which is pretty awesome. So you can see how you build the network, you get make sure the customers are really engaged, they're getting value, you're really adding commercial value. You then use that to in- incrementally develop with them better propositions and then start working on that liquidity problem as well and that's how you really get the kind of holistic thank you so much for your time it's been such a pleasure sitting down with you and 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 hearing about all the exciting things you're working on last question is very easy where can people find you follow you and harass you on social media if they have questions yeah i'm on i'm on facebook and uh do, do, do look at my posts and um the great thing about working for um a small company is that you know you can really make a difference um all the top team are on social media ripple is uh, often you know, tweeting and we're often um, on on linkedin so look out for us and it's a great journey um and you know we 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 would welcome all support and any questions absolutely thank we you. will uh, be monitoring your progress and we wish you the best of luck thank you oh, thank you thank you 
At this point in the conference, I was thoroughly impressed. Swell was unlike any other blockchain conference I'd ever attended. In fact, it was much more of a fintech and professional finance services forum than a crypto conference. Everything from the leadership, the guest speakers, down to the technology presented really impressed me. But perhaps most impressive of all was the corporate culture that I witnessed directly from every single Ripple employee I met. I wanted to take a deeper dive into this. And for my final interview, I sat down with Eric Van Miltenberg, who is the SVP of Global Operations at Ripple. Prior to joining Ripple, Eric held senior positions with high-growth startups and Fortune 500 companies such as Adobe, Yahoo, Hightail, Red Swoosh, Work.com, and ExciteAtHome.com. We begin our discussion talking about Eric's day-to-day responsibilities as head of global operations, and then he gives us a little bit of insight as to how they maintain this great corporate culture. So Eric, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your role at Ripple, what you do on a day-to-day basis, what do you spend most of your time uh, working on? Yeah, absolutely. So again, as, as, as head of global operations, there's a, there's a handful of things that fall underneath that. Um, you know, one is what we call business operations. It's really the ensuring on a daily basis that the sort of communications and coordination across the various functions of the company, especially at the leadership level, um, are, are going smoothly. We're identifying where there might be problems or cracks and quickly addressing them. So I have a team that does everything from just you know, making sure that our, 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 our leadership meetings are focused on the right topics and hold quarterly business reviews and just kind of business hygiene and maintenance along the way, which is important, especially as you're scaling a company. Um, and then in addition, we'll, we'll, we'll embrace and, and drive other, I kind of hate to use the term strategic projects, but things that are cross-functional in nature and need some senior level care and feeding to ensure we come up with real clear, crisp, actionable recommendations as to how we might act differently as a company. Um, so that's business operations. I, I have another group which was, has really been fantastically fun for me because it's new, and that's our, our corporate social responsibility or kind of ripple for good or giving. We're a very mission-driven company, and that comes from Brad, our CEO, Chris Larson, our, 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 our founder mm-hmm. and uh, chairman. And you know, we have a, a handful of activities that we pursue, one that is near and dear to my heart and actually here in Singapore we took it to the next level if you will and that it's called the University uh, uh, Blockchain Research Initiative and it's it's a program we launched across 34 schools 14 countries where we are providing support of those institutions as they pursue research in blockchain digital assets cryptocurrencies um, really trying to uh, increase visibility and understanding of what those what this technology can mean, but also preparing the workforce of tomorrow. So one of our partners here in Singapore is NUS, National University of Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been working with them for about nine months, but this week when I was in town, we actually launched uh, their fintech lab, which we're wow. really proud to be able to support. And this is going to be a kind of a hands-on environment for students to get really practical. Uh, you know, more than academic theoretical knowledge and experience working with industry. Um, and they're just, they're a fantastic partner and a great institution. And we're thrilled to be able to have a chance to uh, partner with them. So that's the second part. And we do more than just that, but there's a philanthropic angle to what I'm involved with. And then third, and probably where I spend most of my time is around our global operations truly. So we have, we have offices in uh, eight plus cities around the world. And in several of them, we actually are staffing them up significantly because mm-hmm. We need to be close to our customers. We need to be responsive to their needs in a timely fashion. Uh, we need to understand the use cases in the market, the regulatory environment, and you can't 
do that if all you do is sit in San Francisco. Sure. So uh, it's been a busy week. We opened up officially our brand new office here. We've had employees in Singapore for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but we've grown to a point where we needed our own space. We were in a, a, a Jesco, a WeWork type facility, right, right. <laughs> and that was getting a little a little cramped. So we have a beautiful new office. Uh, we've we've over doubled the size of the team here in Singapore in the past year. We're twenty some odd, and we you know we will make continued investments in this market. But you know, and, and so I recently hired a guy to run our Southeast Asia operations based out of here. I also have somebody in um, in uh, Mumbai who covers all of South mm-hmm. Asia and the Middle East. Uh, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, somebody who's covering all of South America. We have a joint venture with a Japanese company, so a woman on my team manages our joint venture relationship. So a lot of what keeps me busy is ensuring that we think sort of holistically about how we run the, the, the global strategic offices and make sure there's proper alignment and coordination with the rest of the company around the world. Right. So you're, I mean... Obviously, you must travel a lot because uh, you and, and increasingly more as you open yeah. up offices around the world. Uh, I guess your direct touch point would be sort of the, the heads of each of these offices. Yeah, exactly. Um, so congratulations on the opening the Singapore office. I think that was uh, very timely. During swell, we're great. excited. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think. Uh, you know, I asked some of your the other people that I was speaking to earlier about the significance of Asia in sort of the the roadmap and the the, the grand vision of of Ripple. Um, you know, what what can you say about sort of Asia, its significance, and um, you know, obviously you guys are making an investment here now with the team office um, and your Japanese partner, as you mentioned before. Uh, what are your what's your outlook for for Asia? Yeah, outlook's super sunny. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you 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 certainly caught caught the point that Asia is an incredibly strategic geography, a part of the world for, for Ripple. You know, we're, as you've heard from my colleagues, we're building a global payments network. Um, every financial institution that joins RippleNet is another node on that network. Mm-hmm. And so our goal right now is to light up the network, to create as many high-quality endpoints and financial institutions that allow more transacting. You know, each node can transact with another node. So. The, we, we listen to the market, we listen to our customer, and there's just a ton of demand coming from Asia-Pac. Um, honestly, about half of our customers are located in Asia-Pac, which is, wow. you know, which, which in and of itself says a lot about uh, this. And you know, kind of an obvious question is, is why? I mean, what is it that we're doing that seems to resonate? And I think it goes to the fact that our sweet spot is really addressing um, payments use cases where there's l- low value, high volume payments being done. Right. So, you know, low dollar amount, but there's just a lot of transactions. And today's, or I'd like to say now, yesterday's infrastructure was well suited much more to like big bulky payments that sure. were, you know, every week you could send a payroll for a large corporation from point A to point B. And the old infrastructure did that pretty well. But today's economy, you're looking at you know, far more. I mean, the growth of remittances around the world is is increased dramatically. It's over six hundred billion dollars now. Um, in India alone, there's seventy billion dollars a year flowing into the country from a remittance use case. So, to address that, you can't lean on the old infrastructure. And the fact that Ripple is bringing sort of the next generation uh, cross border payments technology into operations, we're basically the only enterprise blockchain company that really has an in-production sure, yeah. uh, revenue-generating product out there. And you know, as I said, the market tells us where to go. So as we build this network, 
you know, our customers identify which corridors they are looking to send or receive money from. And we, we obviously listen to that, and that helps us to identify which markets are important. And again, Asia has been a consistent theme. Um, we've leaned, leaned into that across Asia Pac, both in uh, you know Mumbai, as I mentioned here, in Tokyo with our joint venture partner. So, and we don't see that slowing down. Uh, I think we continue to get a really, really warm reception. What we're doing is resonating. So we will continue to lean into that, and I see our investment really growing in this region. You find that the the customers that you're targeting, they're receptive more receptive, more or less receptive in Asia to sort of this use of digital assets to solve this cross-border payment problem? Um, you know, it varies. It, it Certainly, you look at, at um, certain jurisdictions, certain geographies where uh, central banks have have been, you know, at the forefront of providing that regulatory clarity. So mm-hmm. we, we work with um, not only banks and payment providers as our customers, but within the ecosystem, we also have to engage with regulators. The, uh, the, we want to make sure that, that they feel comfortable with what we're doing and so they really are clear about what we're not doing. And that clarity oftentimes um, is the leading indicator of where adoption is greatest. And right. It's not unique to Asia. I think MAS has been super progressive. The Monetary Authority of Singapore has always set the tone for the region and mm-hmm. many other countries, central banks, take their lead from some of the really innovative, pro- progressive thinking um, that's happening here. Because you know, I think the role regulators play is not only important, it's challenging, and that they have to regulate and protect the greater populace, but they, they can't do that if they're simultaneously stifling innovation, yes. right? So you've got to find that balance. And I think what is true in this part of the world is that the more forward-thinking regulators have noticed that some of the, um, the legacy uh, providers, banks, et cetera, et cetera, the, the, they're shortchanging the population. Right. The, 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 the quality of solution isn't meeting the need. So therefore, they have to adjust the regulation to let some of the fintechs come in and some of these new solutions, still regulated, still compliant, still keeping the greater population safe, but yet uh, allowing innovation and allowing um, these higher quality of services, especially for the needs of the region, to be delivered uh, efficiently and, uh, and quickly. So, yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting to see what, like, this last week, China kind of did a 180, and they, they're, they're kind of trying to be on the forefront of, you know, digital, digital assets and, and sort of encouraging that, that growth. Um, India is another interesting uh, market. Uh, I'm not sure what the legal status is there, but um, there's certainly a lot of unbanked there that, that could use uh, a product like, like Ripple. Um, so I guess what... Uh, you might have just answered that, but is, what's the biggest pushback that you get from regulators when you go around the world? Is it basically that, what you just said, balancing uh, the need for to protect the consumer versus, uh, or the user versus, uh, you know, stifling innovation? Would you say that that's, like, getting them over that educational sort of hurdle is the hardest thing or the biggest pushback that you get? Or are there other issues that you're faced with? Yeah, I think maybe at a, at a, at a macro level that's true. The the um, I think mostly what we see is is misperceptions. And so a lot of what we're doing is simply trying to educate 
Um, what does Ripple do? And almost equally as important, what is Ripple n not doing, right? I think people still glom on to some of the early stories associated with Bitcoin and mm -hmm. blockchain where, you know, all this sort of non-savory stuff was happening on the dark web. And there's, there's a long sort of uh, uh, hangover from that. And so at, at first, banks hear crypto and they think, um, you know, sort of anti-government, anti-bank. Yep. We're trying to circumvent the system and avoid, you know, compliance and avoid uh, uh, paying taxes and all these yep. things, right? And so when Ripple comes in and shares what we do, we work with banks. We're sitting down and engaging with you, Mr. or Mrs. Regulator. We explain that what we're trying to do is not replace fiat currency, mm -hmm. you know, the local currency, wherever it may be, but we're trying to make the movement of fiat currency from one country to another country more efficient. Um, we're not trying to you know, avoid uh, compliance. All the institutions we work with go through the you know, know your customer and anti-money laundering checks. The, the level of sort of uh, anxiety goes down quickly. Now, you know, that doesn't mean it's a one conversation and everybody gets it, mm -hmm. it, it but the, the, it's not necessarily pushback after there's a full understanding of right. what Ripple's all about. Now, you're right. Certain markets, um, India, for example, they have more of a holistic anti-crypto stance right now. Is that going to last forever? We don't think so because we've already seen in other markets there's been an evolution. Thailand, for example, uh, was, was rather anti digital assets, mm -hmm. they've done a, I wouldn't say an about face, but they've, they've warmed up significantly over the past 18 months or so. So I think there's, to us, and we're in the middle of it, we think it's more of a, a matter of time as opposed to a if, it's, it's when, not if. Yeah. And so um, we invest a fair amount of energy. We've engaged with 50 you know, central banks around the world, and we continue to want to make sure they're, they're clear on what we do. So along the same vein, let's talk a little bit about uh, the the company culture there at, at Ripple. You know, I mean, from from the people that I've met, uh, and this is a credit to your company and to you uh, as as the head of uh, global operations. You know, everyone that I've met has been very uh, of the same culture, uh, just very modest, down to earth, no arrogance whatsoever. Uh, for a company of your size operating at the scale that you guys are, it's it's very impressive to to see that. Um, surely there are concerted, concerted metrics that are in place that in, in this sort of culture that you try to uh, sort of you know, proliferate within the, the company walls. Maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, how, how, you, how you manage to create this type of culture. Yeah, no, I, I, thank you for noticing that because we are, we are really proud of it. Um, it is conscious, it is very proactive and, and purposeful. Uh, and it does start with our, our most senior leaders. Again, you know, both Brad and, and Chris, our, our chairman, uh, take take building the right culture very seriously. You know, philosophy of you know to 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 great to, to create great products and user experiences. You got to you got to have good people. But to have good people, you have to make sure that they're operating within the right culture. So we have a a set of sort of values that we make explicit on your first day, you're, you're, you're introduced to, to uh, Ripple's values. Um, we celebrate those on a quarterly basis at our, we have a quarterly all hands meeting where 
we we reward a member of the team who has exemplified those values mm-hmm. and 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 we celebrate them and that reinforces that need uh not that need but that objective um one of the things we do is we also on a very frequent basis we, we, we survey the employees we do employee engagement employee engagement surveys and as a leadership team we spend a lot of time on the results and you know there's always room for improvement but we take very proactive steps and you know with with very specific owners if there's things that you know need improving or we've seen great areas of opportunity you know we can double down and know that some of our efforts are going well so you're right where i you know i i've been at ripple for um three years uh, when I started, we were about 120 people. We just crossed 400 people around the world. So it's a fair amount of growth in three years. Um, but it's growth for a company of our size, I think, that's a, it, very distributed. You know, We have the team, as I mentioned here, in Singapore is over 20 now. We have 40-some-odd people in London, 30 in New York, 20-some-odd in, in uh, Mumbai. So we're a pretty distributed workforce for a company of our size. And so we know that we have to keep a, a real eye on the culture as we grow, not only just in size, but also in sort of geographic uh, dispersity. Um, to maintain that, and I think we've done a pretty good job so far. Um, but it's 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 a never-ending process, right? We always have to be um, conscious of it and investing in it, and um, you know, it's a it's something we do take seriously. Well, I feel like it. Uh, I feel like it's going to be increasingly challenging as your company grows and, and sees more success uh, around the world. Um, and we'd hate for you know. Yeah, I mean, there's we've we've all heard the stories, but I think I think the key, like you said in the beginning, it comes top down as well. So when when the leadership uh, exemplifies this type of culture and and doesn't tolerate anything other than that, usually it tends to trickle down pretty well. So um, so so kudos to to you and your team there. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, sort of looking forward uh, from an operation standpoint. You know. Uh, Asia, obviously, we talked a little bit about any particular markets within Asia that you're particularly excited about or even the rest of the world uh, that that you're looking to potentially add team members to uh, service uh, a lot of new customers um, or are going sort of leaning in heavily uh, talking or dealing with central banks. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of markets we're interested in. Again, we have our ear to the ground, so to speak. We're always, you know, engaging with our existing customers and understanding the market dynamics. Um, You know, in Asia specifically, we've seen some great uh, success in Thailand and and we'll continue to, to focus on our opportunities there. Philippines uh, is especially exciting, you know, one of the largest remittance markets in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we launched uh, one of our, our key initiatives there. We call it liquidity on demand. This is where we, um, we actually are able to leverage a digital asset to facilitate very quick movement of value um, to the recipient using digital assets in the blockchain that means they don't have to pre-fund accounts. I won't get into the detail, but it's a, it's a, it's a game changer in the industry. And uh, Philippines is one of these countries where there's been the regulatory clarity, where we've launched the product. And as a result, we're seeing some great response there. So I think Philippines will continue to be a market of interest. Um, you know, with our JV partner in Japan, both Japan and Korea have also been real bright spots. So uh, that's just, you know, kind of some top of mind countries, uh, but there's plenty of opportunity across the whole spectrum. For us globally, 
Um, you know, in South America, Brazil has just been a fantastic market for us. Um, I think there's some, some uh, specific aspects of how money is allowed to move in and out of Brazil that our solution happens to address very effectively. So we're seeing some good traction there. Um, you know, we have been very methodical about how we roll things out. Again, we're still, I mean, in the broad spectrum of global payments companies, we're still relatively small. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we want to make sure that we focus on a specific set of things and get them right as opposed to try to spread ourselves too thin. So as we get success in a market, we sort of land and expand, if you will, throughout the region. Um, you know, one market that's very promising uh, we haven't, uh, and this is on, on by design, we haven't leaned in as much there as, as Africa. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of opportunity. And it isn't for lack of interest. It's more we want to get our first set of markets done right. So I wouldn't be surprised as you look into the next year and the year beyond that we do more uh, in, in Africa to address that market. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Uh, last question is basically where can people find you, follow you uh, if you're on social media or learn more about the good work that you're doing there at Ripple? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm Eric Van M on Twitter and you can definitely follow me there. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know how exciting what I have to say is, but it's, it's <laughs> worth checking in every now and then. Um, but I, I appreciate you having me and um, we'll look forward to continuing the conversation. Absolutely. Wish you guys the best of luck. Thanks so much. I wanted to wrap up this program by jumping back to the end of my first interview with Brad Garlinghouse, who previously mentioned that 40% of Ripple's customer base sits in Asia. Brad leaves us with some forward-looking statements with regards to the region in particular, his overall macro outlook on the crypto industry, and some sound advice for aspiring entrepreneurs looking to get into the space. I sincerely hope you enjoyed the conversations I had with the executives at Ripple as much as I did. This project is certainly one that I'll be keeping on my radar for the future. Let's talk a little bit about Swell and and Asia specifically because you're here. Um, this is your third uh, Swell conference, and you decided to do it in Singapore. Uh, why did you decide to do it in Singapore? What's your outlook here in Asia? You know, we're we're very interested. Yeah, well, look, I, I mean, uh, Singapore has been a hub of financial services for you know. <laughs> A lot of years, uh, without a doubt, and uh, I think particularly as it relates to blockchain and crypto, there has been, I think, a progressive forward-leaning viewpoint about how these technologies can benefit existing financial systems, existing payment mechanisms. And so, uh, in as we looked at various markets, you know, Singapore and MAS as a regulator here locally has been uh, open-minded to, as long as you know, KYC regulations are intact as long as anti-money laundering regulations are intact and things like that. They, I think, have had a pretty open viewpoint to how these technologies uh, can can benefit some of these systems. Yeah, I mentioned earlier about 40% of our customers are across the Asia-Pacific region, region and so uh, we felt like it made sense to uh, host an event here. And, you know, a lot of the speakers where, you know, our speaker in San Francisco swell last year was Bill Clinton. Uh, and prior to that, we had the former head of the U.S. Federal Reserve, uh, Ben Bernanke, you know, having Dr. Rajan, who used to be the governor of the Reserve Bank of India, you know, obviously he's not from Singapore, but certainly representative of more of this region. And a lot of our speakers on stage with the the CEO of DBS yesterday, uh, you know, from this region. And I think you're reflective of how this region is thinking about these technologies and how payments can dramatically improve. From a regulatory standpoint, do you find that people in the region, regulators in the region are more or less conservative than uh, the counterparts in, uh, say, D.C., where you just set up an office? 
You know, I, I don't think of them as more or less conservative. I think uh, I think everybody is sensitive to fundamental financial regulation, like know your customer. Uh, you know, I think that one of the things that has held back crypto in general is some of the, you know, arguably kind of there's a community that I think is so wedded to this, hey, we need to be enable anonymous transactions. Governments aren't excited about anonymous transactions. Uh, they, they haven't been for a very <laughs> long time. And so when, it, you know, and I have said this publicly before, you know, I, I think when people are out espousing anonymity for crypto transactions, I kind of just, I, I don't think that's good for the industry we're trying to grow. We have to be cognizant that we're working within a regulatory framework of the traditional financial system. Uh, and, you know, kind of taking the approach of down with banks and down with governments, I think is short-sighted in terms of the impact that these technologies can have to, to, to touch more and more people and to have more and more people benefit from these technologies through faster transactions, lower cost transactions. Uh, there's a lot of ways that that helps society. Absolutely. Um, Brad, as we look to wrap up, I mean, thanks again for the time. It's been very uh, informative and insightful. Um, just the last few questions uh, that I have for you. And, uh, you know, you've spoken about sort of uh, there's been a lot of analog with sort of uh, where we are in uh, in in relation to, say, Web 1.0, which you were right in the thick of. Um, so when it comes to the... <laughs> I am too, so it's okay. We're in good company. Uh, when it comes to the crypto sort of outlook in the space, you know, I mean, there's only a handful of projects that have real utility. I mean, Ripple being one of them. Uh, where do you think we are? You know, I think uh, Mark Andreessen was asked this and he recently on a podcast and he said 1993, 94. What would you say, you know, and obviously things move faster now because of technology and this sort of thing. I, I mean, I would directionally agree with that. You know, I, it, what year is always a little bit hard to measure. I mean, I, I using a different analogy. I, I've said, you know, I do view this as a marathon. We're on kind of mile two out of 26. Uh, so I think we got a very, there's a lot of road ahead of us. Uh, and I view that as a good thing. You know, I think blockchain technologies are going to touch lots of industries. Ripple has decided to focus on cross-border transactions, cross-border payments today. We'll do other, we will pursue other verticals for sure. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, that it's going to take a decade or two to see that all play out. And quite frankly, you know, if you use Mark Andreessen's characterization, so that was, tw he says we're 26 years into the internet you know, uh, could you have predicted in even 1999 that you could, you know, open the, your Grab app here mm. in Singapore and have a, a car pick you up? And yeah, I, I couldn't have even fathomed that. And I, I was involved with the internet in very, the very early right. days of the internet. Right. I think the same thing's true in blockchain. Right. There's a lot of things where I think blockchain is going to touch how transactions happen. It's very hard to predict all the different ways that, that it will touch uh, consumers and businesses, but it is a profound sea change. In, and I think uh, people maybe don't fully appreciate that yet. Last two questions. Uh, seen a lot of talent accrue from both Wall Street and other parts of uh, industry into blockchain. If uh, a young entrepreneur wanted to uh, go out and, and, and join a crypto project, uh, what advice could you give them? Uh, two pieces of advice. One, uh, try to avoid the hype, focus on the reality. Like I think a lot of projects are very, 
spread themselves very thin, mm-hmm. thinly, uh, as opposed to really going deep in a specific, here's the customer, here's the, how we're helping that customer. And uh, I think what has served Ripple well is we've been very focused on a specific customer, a specific use case, and that has given us uh, the ability to go deep there and uh, a lot of momentum. The, the second thing, and I, I do give this advice, you know, uh, just last week I was talking to a very talented guy as a marketer who has zero experience in tech and zero experience with blockchain. And, you know, he, we have a job posting for a VP of marketing. He mm-hmm. was interested. And I said, look, you know, you're probably not going to get the VP of marketing job, but if you're really interested <laughs> in this space, like don't get caught up in the title. Right. Like I think people sometimes get too focused on the title. Not if ripple is going to be one of the major winners in the blockchain area, you want to be on a winning team. Sure. And it, you know, we've, we have now over 400 employees. Uh, you know, if you joined two years ago, you were one of the first 160 employees. Right. And as we grow, that gives more opportunity for you to grow with the organization, whether that's promotions or more responsibility, what have you. And so I think if you believe blockchain is going to be profound in lots of ways, you just want to be on a winning team. What your role is, is less important. Awesome. Uh, last question is an easy one. Where can people find you, follow you, learn a little bit more about the good work that Ripple is doing around the world? Well, obviously, Ripple.com. Uh, and I tweet with some regularity uh, <laughs> at B. Garlinghouse. Yeah. And, uh, Apologies for the influx. You're probably going to get swarmed now. We welcome it. We welcome it. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Uh, it's been really great sitting down with you. And uh, we're, we're rooting for you. Looking forward to, to hearing uh, all the good things that you guys are doing around the world. Appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Thanks for having all me. Right. enjoyed today's episode all the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of the jkim show as always i'd love to hear your questions comments or future guest suggestions you can find me on twitter at jkimmer that's j-a-y-k-i-m-m-e-r see you in the next episode